Good morning and welcome. Would you uh, turn me in your Bibles to the book of Romans? We are in chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 16 verses as we continue our study. Last week we talked about what's wrong with the world. Paul gave us quite an explanation. Uh, today we're going to move that conversation a little further where he talks about what's wrong with religion. And uh, please, no comments, okay? Um, but if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading these first 16 verses of chapter 2 together? The apostle begins by saying, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment, do the same, or do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. To those who per, by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask for your help, for your guidance and assistance by your Holy Spirit to not only hear what we have read and what I have to say, but Lord, more importantly, to hear what your Holy Spirit would speak over the top of any comments I make. But Lord, we ask for you to personalize this time in such a way that each of us would hear you, he you speaking specifically to the issues and the challenges, the struggles, maybe even the fears, doubts, and unbelief that we all carry inside of us, and that we would receive that comfort that comes with when we know that you're speaking right into us and our lives personally. This is our desire, Lord. This is our request. We ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the previous chapter, Paul answered the question, what is wrong with the world? 
And Paul's answer is, is really quite interesting. It wasn't simply to tell us that there are a lot of pe people who are doing a lot of bad things. Rather, on a much deeper level, he says it isn't that mankind suffers from a lack of information which renders them ignorant of God. Their problem isn't that they are ignorant of God, he goes on to say, but rather they simply prefer to ignore God. Not ignorant, they just choose to ignore Him. That mankind, he tells us essentially, that literally engages in a kind of philosophical subterfuge of self-deception. Because generally, he goes on to say in verse 28 of chapter 1, that they don't think it's worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. It's interesting how the mind works, that we give attention to the things that we think are worthwhile, and we ignore the things that we think are not worthwhile. I mean, I know that's not rocket science, okay? But think about it for a moment, because oftentimes we don't. We really make constant choices, some very consciously, some of them not quite so conscious, but we just simply go through life looking at various objects, objects and we make judgmental decisions where we decide, this is worth my effort and my energy, and I'm going to invest in that. And I look at something else, and be, if I do, don't perceive value in it, I, I just pass on by or give it a limited time of my attention. And what Paul was saying in that first chapter, he says, this essentially is the heart of the problem. We, we recognize that there's a God. We recognize that He has eternal, eternal power and Godhead. In other words, that He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. But we don't think there's real value in even being thankful and being worshipful and seeking after Him. I mean, I don't have to go too far to say there's a reason why we have room for people to sit here this morning. Because the vast majority of your friends and family and neighbors and people throughout the city don't really feel that this is a value investment of their time. I mean, especially when there's, I don't know, some obscure game going on <clears throat> in a few moments. And, you know, it's, they, and I know some of you are pretending to be more spiritual, but I know you got a DVR, so don't, don't pretend. <laughs> But anyway, but the simple fact is that we make those kind of really critical decisions about how we're going to spend our time, money, and energy based upon what we think is worth it and what we consider is not worth it. And this was Paul's thing. When you really want to get down to what's wrong with the world, they made an initial decision that really pursuing God and, and seeking to know God, even being available enough for God to make himself known in some profound way, wasn't really worth the effort. And so they went in different directions. And that direction ultimately, he said, became that God just gave them over to what they wanted. It's almost like saying to somebody, I'm tired of arguing with you. Uh, you want it, go ahead and get it. But you'll regret that you made that choice. And that doesn't seem to stop a lot of people who have once made up their mind it's like the old adage, don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind. A lot of life is lived that way by a lot of people, and sadly, it's only after the consequences, you know, the chickens have come home to roost, that we really begin to realize what a poor decision that was for me to have made. Over the years, I've had that, on a few occasions, that tragic conversation with somebody who is spending their last few minutes and moments on earth, they're ready to pass into attorney and have them recount to me 
those pivotal defining moments where they could have chosen to follow God, but they chose not to because they didn't believe it was the best way to spend their life. And that's essentially, Paul says, this becomes that, that defining dynamic that really governs over the life of men, and it's not guaranteed that we'll make the right choice. It's not guaranteed that we'll make the right decision. But this kind of uh, selective amnesia about God, if you will, is not something that is really easy to do. We often think, well, that's easy enough to do. I just pretend that God isn't there. And yet, it's not easy to do. I mean, I think anthropologist John M. Cooper, 75 years ago, came up with research that he really kind of underlined the struggle. In his book called The Relations of Religion and Morals in Primitive Peoples, he said literally, the peoples of the world, however much they may differ, hold universally to the moral code of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, in other words. He says, and it doesn't matter how primitive or sophisticated a culture is, you find the Ten Commandments in one form or another that is expressed in every culture that's ever organized itself in the history of the world. That there is, what he's saying, certain common core values. There is, there is a natural law, the way government specialists put it, that, that kind of governs the world of men so that we go into various cultures and they may have dimensions of difference, but yet essentially at its core it's always the same thing that you, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, now we, we tend to shave that. I can't commit adultery unless, of course, I have these following stipulations. <laughs> you know, and we, we find ways of rationalizing and justifying and getting around it, but at its roots, essentially it's the same. And that's simply because things like faith and worship and religion are hardwired into the human psyche. We can't help ourselves. In fact, uh, this is where, why religion actually becomes burdensome to people, why some people want to rid themselves of it, because the burden of religion is not something that we can easily escape. In fact, uh, Jay Budashevsky in his wonderful book called What We Can't Not Know about his study on natural law, <clears throat> writes the following. He says, our problem is not that there isn't a common moral ground, essentially there is common moral ground, but that we would rather stand somewhere else. Clear vision of the moral law is crushing because he said the first thing that an honest man sees with his, this clear vision is a debt that exceeds anything he can pay. In other words, any moral code, whether it be God's or it be one that I make for my own self, soon becomes a, a greater requirement than I can consistently live up to. It's something that even the Apostle Paul would later in Romans admit to in his own life when he said in chapter 7, verse 22, he says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. God's law in this context does not necessarily mean the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Law. It's the idea that there are certain things that God says are right and they're true and they're good. There's a thing in me that is, is really in agreement with things that are right and true and good. But he goes on, I see another law or literally another prevailing principle operating on the inside of me. It's at work. In fact, he says it's waging war 
against the law of my mind. In other words, there's this conflict in my mind about what I know to be right and what I know to be true and what I know to be good, and yet there's this this purient passion inside of me to want to ignore that and do just the opposite. And he goes on to say, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Basically, the law of sin is what I know is wrong and false and bad. And then his conclusion finally says, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. I never ever viewed myself as a wretched man until I got chronologically to the point in my life where I could look back on the history of my lifetime and suddenly discovered a whole new dimensional dimension called regret. It's where you look at things and saying, you know, there's so many things you could have done differently if you had just been more informed. And because most of us live out our life following the patterns that were passed on to us by those who raised us and who we looked up to and who mentored us in, in whatever thing we're in. And we're, we pretty much follow this program by rote until one day you look at that and say, you know, I'm not sure that was always the best way. Maybe some ways that wasn't the healthiest way to be an employee or be an employer or be a husband or be a wife or mother or father. You you begin to look at all those social dynamics of your life and say, you know, if I had been wiser and I had been more experienced, I would have done this differently, Uh, which is somewhat a useless exercise because I don't care who you are or how well you've done, you'll still find room to ask those questions. But what is really at the heart of it is that the man and the woman, especially if you don't know Christ, if he wants to return or retain his or her sanity, is really left with two options. That one, we can on the one hand suffer the constant mental abuse of of ethics and a morality which we cannot really keep, and thereby exposing not only our sinfulness, but also bringing us into the guilt and the accumbent shame that comes with that, which breeds over time its own kind of insanity. That there's so many neurotic behavior choices that people make, which are really the outwork of that guilt and that shame because they know that they've been weighed in the balances of life and they are wanting, that they're not measuring up to some standard, that it literally can put people into a state of psychosis. How many people abuse drugs and alcohol and, and other things simply because they're trying to drown out the noise of their own guilt and shame because they know that they haven't lived up to the moral standards, the ethical standards that God says we have to keep perfectly if we want to be loved completely. The other option, rather than going insane, is to become a hypocrite. And hypocrites, hypocrisy is for me many things, but one that stands out is that I start to sanctify my own preferences. In other words, I look at God's standard and say, well, you know, that's nice, but I'm going to redefine the standard, and I'm going to call this new standard holiness. 
the danger Isaiah said in his own day. And keep in mind, Isaiah was speaking to a group of people who showed up at the temple at every assigned moment. They did all the sacrifices. They made all the offerings. They, did, they were religiously circumspect in terms of the God of Israel. But the prophet says to him that you are a people who essentially call evil good and good evil. You exchange darkness for light and light for darkness. You call bitter things sweet and you call sweet things bitter. In other words, he's saying you have really just, uh, instead of addressing the hole in the side of the Titanic of your life, you're just busily rearranging the deck chairs and saying it's okay, it's okay now, it's all new. Rather than denying that there is such a thing as truth, we make truth something that's fluid and malleable and conformable to my own character. And I develop flexible standards and even make false comparisons like, well, I'm not as bad as Ted Bundy or, you know, I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, I ate my dog, but I didn't eat my neighbor, so I'm not as bad as him. You know, and, and we make these kind of <clears throat> false comparisons, and suddenly we feel better about ourselves. At its very worst, when we see this begin to apply, uh, there are extremes that eventually begin to manifest themselves, and they're so easy to identify and so easy to condemn. I mean, you have men like Adolf Eichmann, who was the mastermind of the, of the Holocaust, of the extermination of the Jews. But as he was at coming to the end of his life before his execution, he made this amazing statement. He says, the feeling that I have of five million human beings on my conscience is a source of extraordinary satisfaction. He literally said, one day you will honor me because I'm doing God's work by killing the Jews. We look at that and we go, well, how do you get there? Well, you don't get there overnight. It's a process, and that's kind of the thing that Paul was talking about, the process, how that mind is given over, is given over, and given over to eventually there's a certain depravity that comes in. Or you have people like teenage mass murderer Ed Harris of Columbine High School fame, who on his social media account had written before he murdered and then was killed himself. He says, my belief is that if I say something, it goes I am the law. If you don't like it, you die. And these kind of things are more than anomalies. They're more than just kind of outliers. They are, the, to a the greater degree, what you and I engage in in a lesser degree. You see, in a thousand lesser ways, we do the very same thing. I mean, we justify wrong by thinking about it and saying things. Things like, well, I'm not being judgmental, I'm just being truthful. Or I'm not angry, I'm just being emphatic. Or I'm not negative, I'm just being discerning. Or I'm not dishonest, this is just how you do business. I'm not cheating, this is how you do your taxes. It's not lust, it's appreciation. Lots and lots of appreciation. Or 
maybe the worst of all, we just simply say, well, everybody else is doing it. You see, it's not that God so much disagrees with what you're saying. It's rather He sees what you're doing from a completely different perspective. When He says in Matthew 7, 23, Jesus said, You've heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, suddenly took those standards and brought them down to a pedestrian level that included us all, that he simply said, you have to understand that even the thought of the heart, the, 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 the meditations of the mind can be sinful in God's eyes because what they reveal is what eventually is going to be the fruit of your life. When you look at the fruit, you can draw certain conclusions about the root and what your life is rooted in. And Jesus is simply saying that even though you may not have any fruit on you that convicts you of anything, the root is already there. It's, it's growing up, and it's just a matter of time. In fact, later on in his condemnation of the most religious people probably in the history of the world, the Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices of mint, dill, and cumin. Can you imagine that? You have this little window box and you harvest your spices and you sit down and you start counting out anise seeds. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and one for God. One, two, fastidious, conscientious. But then he says to them, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. In other words, you've neglected the things that really matter to me. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. He went on to say, you, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Because you see, under the Mosaic law, if you had a gnat in your, in your wine, it made it polluted, and you became unclean and had to go be cleansed before you could go to the temple and offer your sacrifice. And he said, but it's, you strain out that net, but you might as well go and have uh, camel burgers, which is an unclean meat. Here it's not bad, but nonetheless. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And he says, therein lies the central problem of religion. It has the ability oftentimes to clean up the outside to make you more publicly presentable. But it is powerless to touch what's on the inside. Because there, sin still rules, regardless of how religious your life is. And there's nothing that you and I can do to change that. Now, the first century religionist and moralist would have loved chapter 1. And amens would have filled the room as Paul laid out his indictment against idolaters and the immoral. In fact, some of you were delighted by my message last week. I mean, it resonated the frustration you feel as you view the banal and brutal new world that you see rising up amongst us. Budashevsky put it really well. He said that never before has vice held the high moral ground. Our time considers humble faith in God a sign of impious pride. 
The moral law has become the very emblem of immorality, and we call affirming it being judgmental. So he complains about this topsy-turvy nature of our culture, but at the same time, this is also the trap of religion. Religion sees sinfulness in others, but suffers a congenital blindness about the sin that's in our own heart. I deceived myself into thinking that in some essential way, because I am religious, I'm not just different than other people, but I'm better than other people. And simply because I can see something wrong in somebody else, it misses the greater truth that sinfulness, as we talked about last week, is a congenital birth defect of the soul that's inside of me and it's inside of you. And that defect never misses an opportunity to disguise itself as goodness. And that's why Paul, in writing, says that at whatever point you judge, you do the same thing. I kept on looking at that this week and thinking about at whatever point. Essentially, he says, it doesn't matter what you see in other people Part of the reason you see it is because it has a familiar, recognizable ring to it. I know that sound. Remember a few weeks ago, early in the morning, I was walking through the foyer, and, and a gentleman in the dark said, Pastor Ken! And I turned around, and I looked, and I said, how did you know it was me? He says, oh, I, can, I know that walk. Walk this way. <laughs> I don't know. It's like I, you know, created all sorts of terrible insecurities in me that I had to struggle with the whole rest of the day. But aside from all of that, honey, do I walk funny? Oh, she said, that's just the beginning. But anyway, it's... <laughs> but we see things in people and we go, oh, they're so proud. Hmm. <laughs> when did you become an expert in seeing that? Oh, they're just such a jealous, they're so petty. Oh, they're just always, and we go through these things and it never occurs to us that we may be zeroing in on those things. I discovered that I don't see things in people because they're not the kind of stuff that I struggle with, but the things that I struggle with, I see with clarity in other people and really, really get tired of it. You know, there's a reason that Paul said to the Ephesians in the end of chapter 4 when he said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice and be instead kind and compassionate to one another and forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Oh, I wish you paid closer attention to that how much easier my life would be, and I wouldn't have to do it myself. People are just way too judgmental, and I'm pretty confident that my judgment on their judgmental is accurate. It, it's, it's just like, well, we need to understand that too often religion is nothing more than truth without compassion. One of the most powerful passages in the gospel, at least to me, was that when it said Jesus looked 
on the multitudes like sheep that were without shepherd, and he had compassion on them. He didn't see all of their failings and their foibles and their craziness that was going on. He saw that there were prostitutes and there were lepers and there were hypocrites and there were people of the entire, you know, rainbow cross-section of humanity. And his response was not to say, you know, I like that one, but I just can't stand that one. It just said he looked at them and realized that because they don't have the shepherd, they're lost and they're facing danger and I have compassion on them. I would tell you that there's nothing more dangerous than certainty. Certainty particular in my own rightness when confronting someone else's wrong. I mean, there's a reason that Paul said to the Galatians, if you see your brother overtaking a fault, go to him, but in a spirit of meekness, first considering your own self. There's a reason that the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart and test me and see if there's any offensive way in me. There's a reason why Jesus said in the sermon, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Because as Paul would later ask the Corinthians, what makes you different from anyone else? The answer, other than Jesus, absolutely nothing. I think the adage of the old adage that says, when you point your fingers at me, three fingers are pointing back at you, has kind of a corny truism to it that we should not ignore. Because I see most clearly in others what is all too familiar within myself. This is the reason why God wrote His moral code and put it into men's hearts, as Paul said here. He said, even the Gentile, by choosing to follow moral prerogatives, proves that that is written on his heart, even though he may never have heard the Moses' Decalogue read to him. He understands these things. That the law becomes really the, the great equalizer amongst us. When Paul in chapter 3, we'll get to in a few weeks. Good, the sneeze passed. <coughs> the cough didn't. I, I had an interesting experience last night. I, I sneezed, coughed, and yawned all at one point, all at the same time. <laughs> It was kind of like having a stroke. <laughs> anyway, so keep the, keep the AEDs close. I may need them. <laughs> anyway, but Paul said in Romans 3.10, and he's, he's writing to you and me when he writes this, and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. The whole world is held accountable. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, or we might substitute by being fastidiously religious. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. 
there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no difference. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the religionist will often assume that he or she is different. They'll say, and, and maybe accurately so, well, I'm born again and Christ lives inside of my heart and I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We may even want to add layers to it. I'm spirit-filled. I speak in tongues and dance in the Spirit and wave flags and all this sorts of stuff. That I am the temple of the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of me. All which is true, I hope and pray for every one of us. But what we tend to overlook is why that can be true for you. And Paul gave that answer to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 4, when he said, because of his, that is God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, and it is by grace you have been saved. You know, that's, those kind of passages are so important to unpack because he says, what is your condition? Further on, he goes, you who before you were saved were by nature objects of God's wrath. That's who you were before Jesus. You were an object of God's wrath. In other words, if you did not give your life to Christ, the ultimate consequence was you were going to be the object of God's wrathful judgment upon you because of your unrepentant sin. But what changed all of that? You who were dead in your transgressions and your sin, you, were, you, you had no life force in you. You were simply a, a battery that was waiting to run out of juice. And there was no more until the spark of life was gone. That was your, <coughs> your destiny. That was your, your formation. And God looked at that deadness. He looked at your life as it simply was sparking out. And because He is love, love pr produces action, and that action was mercy. And mercy is not receiving what I deserve. Somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I've just decided to show you mercy. You should know at that moment that they have something against you. They see something that you have done wrong. Otherwise, you don't say that. No, I, I've decided to show you mercy because you don't deserve what you've earned or you, know, or you have earned what's coming. God showed me mercy. Because why? Because He is a loving God. And the expression of that mercy was to show me grace. Grace is not just some theological term. It is a power of God released upon holy, undeserving beings. God was gracious to me. He reached in and He touched me and He drew him, me unto Himself. And there's not one thing that I can assign as being the cause because He says the cause is because God is loving. That's the cause. That's why when Paul sought to put it into perspective for the Corinthians, he said to them in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, 
we have this treasure. Speaking of the the spirit of the life-giving God living inside of us, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, a jar of clay was the most common, lowly (coughs) implement that existed in the ancient world. If you go to archaeological sites in Israel today, you can pick up as many clay remnants as you want because the ground is literally littered with thousands of years of clay pot shards, broken clay pots. They were just simply used, and when they broke, they threw them away because like your body, from dust they came and to dust they returned. And they litter everywhere. There's nobody ever sat back and said, uh, you know, up until modern times when we began to decorate them and make them things of great beauty. But when he says you're a clay pot, let's keep it in the context of his life, his culture. It's just basically basic. Nothing special. Nothing notable. That's what we are. That God could have pulled a thousand pots off of a thousand shelves. He simply just chose you and He filled you with Himself, with the Spirit of God. Why? Why would God do anything special in you and through you? And He says that it might become unmistakable to everybody that all this all-surpassing power and glory is Him not you. See, the problem with religion is it it begins to think that it's something about me. Well, yeah, it's the Lord. (laughs) I know, I, I am His humble servant. But it's Him. I just happen to be the one who was open and yielded I mean, we, we kind of go through this, you know, and, and more of us are more like Jonah than we ever want to admit. The truth of the matter is, the moment I begin to kind of scrape together something that I say, well, it's because I'm this way, I, not, I fall into that horrible dimension of pride in my life that separates me from you and begins to deceive us into the original sin, which was pride, that somehow makes you better and more special and above. And you and I are guilty of doing that in a thousand ways. We, we were raised that way. Well, <clears throat> I'm from Washington. Thank God I'm not from L.A. I was listening to one of the candidates talking about, well, those people in New York... You know, we do this kind of stuff all the time. We're Americans. We can do it. We're not like those greasy ragheads in Iran. And we begin to to look at the world around us, and we it, it gets it can become so particular, saying, "Well, you know, the thing about Calvary is we teach the word." I don't need to say any more. At the church once, and the pastor was the slogan of their church in another place. (laughs) But they said, 
Calvary, such and such a city, where the sheep love to eat. And they really did until he ran off with somebody else's wife. But, you know, it's, it's just this crazy dynamic that there is always this thing inside of us that is pushing us to somehow say, you know, I'm a little bit better than you or someone else because of this thing that I've got, this thing that I do. And that's fine until you meet somebody who does what you do better than you do it, and then you get depressed. And that's the nature of living by a law. How does a man or woman become truly holy in God's eyes? It's not by never sinning because there's no such thing. Holiness comes by honesty. That's why Paul said, do you not realize, has your stubborn and unrepentant heart blinded you to the fact that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance? It's not your awareness. It's God's kindness that He kindly opens my eyes and suddenly I see I'm a sinner and I can't save myself and without His grace I am lost eternally. <coughs> Excuse me. It's His kindness that allows that to happen so that I can't even take credit for that. But there's a simple progression that happens, but it depends upon honesty. That first of all, I have to see my sin. And that's where it begins. And that's where Paul's real indictment in these chapters is against people. They refuse to see their sin. They, they want to define it differently than what it is. They want to call it something else. They don't want to have to say, I have this congenital birth defect of my soul that if I am breathing, I'm probably sinning sometimes, oftentimes in ways that I don't even recognize. It's like being in a conversation where someone keeps on talking and talking and talking and the whole time you're thinking to yourself, I wish they would talk, stop talking so I could start. It's the idea that it's just there is this thing in us that is broken. And there's a reason why Paul in the end of Corinthians said that when Christ comes, he's going to give you a new body, one that's not damaged like this one. One that's not, doesn't have the birth defect of sin in it, but is renewed in perfect perfection and holiness. That's why the hope of the believer is not to repair this one, but to receive a new one. Religion says, join our organization or follow our program <clears throat> And we'll take that rolling wreck of a life and we'll rebuild it and we'll make it into a classic. Now, it was a guy who really 
can get interested in beautifully restored classic cars. I have to confess that it's amazing it is it to me that somebody can actually do something like that. The craftsmanship staggers my mind. But if I have to go on a road trip, I don't want to take that car. A 34 Ford is still a 34 Ford. There is no air. There is no radio. <laughs> there is no CD. There is no Wi-Fi. They, you know, some of the things that are essential to just the functioning of life, <laughs> you know, it has none of those things. <laughs> and I think that's what happens to us. We have something that we can park in the garage and keep there when the weather's bad and maybe roll out and kind of tootle down the road and everybody looks and goes, wow, man, I haven't seen one of those since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I think you got huge grasshoppers in your community. But, you know, and it's all that fun. I mean, it's all that, but at the end of the day, that's not what I, what I want to make a journey in. And religion can be something that's really admirable. I've seen people say, I just, I just love the pageantry. I love the robes. I love the smoke and the incense and the chanting and the songs. Uh, you know, and, and I'm just talking about a Baptist church. We, you know, we, people say, I love all this stuff. But the simple truth is, that's all accoutrements. When it comes down to, but what about making the journey in life? I, I want the Holy Spirit. I want the newness of God. I want the moment of God right now in my life, living and moving in me, that is poured out in abundance to those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift them up. It takes honesty to admit that I need to be humbled. So that when I see my sin, I admit my sin. And then I do the only other thing I can do I accept His grace. That's it. Beyond that, there is nothing more. We want to add something else to it all the time. Yes, but you have to understand, you also need to... And suddenly it becomes a religion again. And the simple reality is that day by day, it always comes down to, I just need to be willing to see my sin when God shows it to me. I need to admit it. And then I need to come to Him and say, Lord, I accept the grace to live differently. So this all-surpassing power that suddenly can manifest itself out of the, the lip of your clay jar will be for the glory of God. But in the end of the day, what are you? I'm still just a clay jar. Father God, I pray that you would help us to Make a clear distinction in our mind between the idea of merely being religious and, and what we often say, being in relationship with the God of the universe. A relationship that is predicated upon the fact that I am a sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins, but because of your love, the cause of force was your love for me, moved you to show me mercy and moved you to make me alive and all of that was because of grace. There is no assignable cause. 
There wasn't some secret thing that you discovered in me and said, oh, if I save this one, he can be really used for my kingdom. No, Lord, you, told, you, you said you took the foolish things of the world and, and ever since then you've been confounding the wise because you have determined that it all be for your glory. Help us to be honest, Lord. Help us to recognize that humility and to walk in it, Lord, that we would be freed from the tyranny of trying to prove to the, to the world and everyone else that we're this person of special, unique value and instead realize that all of our worth, all of our value is simply rooted and grounded in the vastness of your love for us. I pray, Lord, that that would become a conceptual reality in the hearts and the minds of us all, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name.